Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to speak with Dean Baker. He's an economist, co-director of the Center for Economic Policy and Policy Research. You know, it's um, it's easy to forget that we are in a historic recession on top of everything else. So I figured we would cover the economy a little bit. We haven't talked about that. There's been so much else going on. Um, but before we speak to Dean, I'm joined, as always, by uh, alternate managing editor, Liz Preza. Hi, Liz. How are you? Hi. There's so much stuff going on all the time. <laughs> There's just so much going on. And this week has been especially horrific. I mean, yeah. just horrific between this lurch towards, um, well, I, I don't even know what to call it. The, the Republicans' embrace of fascist political violence. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Um, Occurring amid the convention, we have a pandemic, and then here's a historic hurricane. And by the way, half of California is on fire. Yep. Yeah, I would like I would like 2020 to just uh, you know like pace yourself, yourself. (laughs) slow it down. Really, just a little much. Just we're reaching the climax a little bit (laughs) too soon. We really are. We really are. Yeah. So, okay, uh, where do we start? What do you want to start with? There's so um, much going on. Well, I guess let's start with the fascist uh, violence on the streets, right? Yeah, um, it is remarkable. So today, uh, we're recording this on Thursday, conservatives are have decided that um, 17-year-old right-wing Blue Lives Matter fanatic who traveled across state lines with an mm-hmm. assault rifle and killed two people, uh, was acting in self-defense. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, let's, let's tie that in. And, and it's, it's ludicrous basically. Um, there, and, and so listeners understand there is a video of people trying to disarm, um, this kid and, then he shoots one of them. So what happened was this was after he had already shot someone in the head and killed them. Mm-hmm. Right. So he kills somebody. Others try to disarm him. And then he has the right to kill them too, because self-defense that's, right. that's the conservative um, brain working for you. And, and I, I, you know, at the same time they are, um, defending the police, mm-hmm. um, uh, shooting Jacob Blake in the back seven times mm-hmm. in front of his three children because he had a, supposedly he had a knife in his car. He wasn't reaching for the knife. Uh, he wasn't threatening them with the knife. He wasn't brandishing the knife. There's a, there's a missing piece, you know, this, this right wing brain, there's a missing something. There's something that's not firing. There's a missing connective tissue, right? If he had a knife in his car, who cares? What does that have to do with anything? It's not a complex thing. A police officer may use deadly force to stop an an imminent attack when they are being threatened. And um, the fact that there was a knife in the car has absolutely nothing to do with anything. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's, really remarkable i mean it's really remarkable that jacob blake is still alive for one that's like a miracle he was shot in the back seven times yeah it is Um, a miracle and then of of course you know kyle howard rittenhouse the 17 year old kid was allowed to return back to his home after killing two people allegedly in a different state you know he was apprehended by authorities in a different state in illinois in illinois and it just i mean there's so many 
elements, there's so many times where we see like just a totally disproportionate response for people who are protesting violence against black and brown people and, you know, people who are white supremacists essentially. And I, one that really stood out to me was I was watching the videos, the New York times did this like really incredible play by play. um, And they have like the video evidence of kind of the moments leading up to and following uh, Kyle Howard Rittenhouse shooting these, these two victims. And in one of them, you see these police officers offering water to these armed militiamen. So they're like shooting, they're calling out, does anybody need water? Of course, none of these idiots thought to bring their own water, which like as a camper pisses me off to no end. Right, right. They're all like, oh, we need water, we need water. And and then that's when the cops say, we really appreciate you guys. And one of these kids goes on to murder two people. And I contrast that with, if you remember at like the height of the, the Black Lives Matter protest back in June, police officers were literally destroying Black Lives Matter protesters, food, medical supplies, medical tents. They were actually destroying their access to to these necessities. And it's just, why? What's the difference? Yeah, well, okay, so why was the difference? (laughs) Actually, there was a piece, let's see what day, it it is out today in The Guardian. Uh, White supremacists and militias have infiltrated police across U.S., Mm -hmm. Uh, white supremacist groups have infiltrated U.S. law enforcement agencies in every region of the country over the last two decades, according to a new report about the ties between police and far-right vigilante groups. The report, the report is by a uh, former FBI special agent, Michael German. That's in, wow. that's in The Guardian. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot of this. So in, in um, Arizona, there are these um, Blue Lives Matter protests, and they've been growing in size and getting uglier and uglier. Um, according to Arizona Central, um, which I, it's the Arizona Republic's online website. Um, let's see. So videos posted to social media and shared with the Arizona Republic show pro-police protesters waved flags, yelled about the threat of Antifa. Um, several people were also caught on camera on video threatening and punching counter protesters gathered across the street with little police intervention. Some were heard making homophobic and racist remarks and Nazi salutes during and following the brawl. Protesters alleged law enforcement is showing favoritism to the pro-police group, who they said largely instigated the violence and include people with far-right white supremacist ties. It's just, you know, we can, it's, it's very obvious that there is a connection between the rhetoric coming from the right to this kind of violence. I mean, it's, you know, they, they have coalesced around this big lie that our cities are on fire and, and there's widespread rioting, none none of which is true, remotely true. There have been scattered riots and, you know, scattered incidents of violence. There's been a lot of much of the rioting has been spurred on by poor policing, overly right. aggressive policing. And uh, I mean, you can go to Portland, you can go to Seattle, you can go to any city that you want and um, you know, everything will seem very normal to mm-hmm. you. And uh, you know, there may be a small area in, in Portland, all of the protests have been around this federal courthouse. It's a big city, you know, nothing is happening anywhere else in the city. I talked to my friend, who lives in Portland the other day. And he was saying, yeah, there's nothing happening here. Right. You know, if you're, if you're not down by that courthouse after dark, um, 
you're not going to see any unrest. Mm -hmm. If you're down there during the daytime, what you'll see is um, peaceful protests. And then the the kind of, I don't want to be a stereotype, but like the older or more, uh, you know, less radical people will go home and then at late at night it gets ugly and, right. you know. But, and also, you know, it's important too, who controls the narrative of, of violence? It's, you know, the police officers who are, who are doing the, the arresting. And you know, there's something to be said about, you know, oh, we're not going to, we're not going to help out these cities also look at all of this violence that's happening because we're not around to help, you know, like that, that kind of narrative I think is really beneficial to police officers, especially who are looking at, you know, calls to defund the police, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it's an ugly situation in that the police can um, spark a riot. They can, you know, and then, and then that supposedly uh, benefits Donald Trump. Most police officers support Donald Trump and uh, obviously, you know, oppose, oppose the protests. I mean, they've gone out of their way to just prove the protesters right at all turns. Mm-hmm. Um, this has sparked, of course, the predictable round of hand wringing among Democrats. There is this idea and it's, it's very persistent that this kind of chaos is going to going to scare the white suburbanites back into the arms of Donald Trump. Now, look, that could happen. I don't know. But he is the incumbent. He is, you know, this is all happening on his watch. He is seen as somebody by the public who is inflaming these tensions. Right. right? So, like, I've said it many times. He is a shit-flinging chaos monkey. And a shit-flinging chaos monkey is not going to be the guy people turn to for right. law and order, right? I mean, I think that if if he is, like, it's it's indicative of a much more serious problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, look, we have a stupid voter problem. There. That's There's no question about yeah. that. And, and a right-wing media uh, propaganda complex and, problem. I mean, but, just poor messaging on the part of Democrats is also a problem, I would argue. Yeah, I mean, that is perpetually the case. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's just, yeah. That's this is what we deal with. De- death and taxes and poor messaging by Democrats. <laughs> kind of a the things we can count on. But let me just point out one thing. Um, there was a um, a poll conducted by uh, MU um, and it was, in, it was in Wisconsin, right? This was pre-Kenosha. And they asked, um, do you approve or disapprove of the way Donald Trump is handling the response to protests about the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis? Again, this was before everything that went down in Kenosha, but we've been dealing with stuff for months. So, um, so thirty percent approved, fifty-eight percent disapproved. So that's a minus net twenty-eight, mm-hmm. right? So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, uh, I don't think I. You know, I worry more that the the punditry saying that it's going to help Trump somehow would would feeds into a, it. Actually, kind of help Trump. I just, yeah, it really doesn't make any like logical sense why it would help Trump. I mean, I, I love it because they're like, this is a preview of life under a Democratic president. It's like, man, like you're literally president. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. the actuality of life as you with you as president. So yeah, really- <laughs> I mean, it's it's really bizarre when he he's like, yeah, like this is this is Biden's America. It's like. Mm. <laughs> Who is the incumbent here? And, and that's, been, that's been a challenge for Trump the whole time because 
the guy only knows how to run one kind of campaign, right? right? He knows how to run as a outsider, bomb thrower, uh, bigot riling up his base. And, and that's all he has. And that's, you know, it's not working for him so far. Um, given that he's the incumbent and, and, you know, he's, and, and people see this as um, a, a real fissure in American society. So uh, the fact that he is, keeps throwing gasoline on the fire, I don't see how it helps him, but it's, we're, we're in very, very dangerous times. Yeah. Obviously. Very and it's an interesting strategy. I mean, there are a lot of, there's a lot that could happen between now and November. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy to think we still have months more of this to go. I mean, it's painful, but I, you know, I have been of the opinion this entire time that there, there is a limited impact of uh, all of any kind of like normal politics, given the scope of the crises we're facing. Right. right. So, you know, does it, does it matter what he says about this? Does it matter what Democrats say about that? Well, it hasn't really mattered so far. You know, Joe Biden has been leading since they started polling head to head against Trump Mm -hmm. by an average of six points, say over the last year plus. And since the, um, since I guess June, let's say he's been at seven to nine, right? You know, he's been at like in seven and a half to nine and a half. Mm-hmm. And it's been, so that's been, you know, a couple of months now. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if it tightens to some degree, but um, you know, I've, I've been of, of the opinion that this, that this election is going to come down to a majority of Americans who want Trump out mm-hmm. versus voter suppression Right. And rat fucking and screwing with the mail and who knows what else and trying to exclude absentee ballots. Um, it's yeah. it, it, That's what this election is going to come down to. I worry about a lot of things. I absolutely do not think Trump can't win the Electoral College, um, but I do think that he can't persuade a majority of eligible voters who want to cast a ballot that he right. is the better choice. Right. I just think I, I just think that X factor is like a really, you know, that's a big question. Mark, that is, is the big happens. question. That is the, that is the giant question. <sighs> and that's what the entire election is coming down to. Yeah. It's really, this is really crazy. <laughs> it's just like, I, I sometimes feel like I'm having an outer body experience. I'm like, this really couldn't get any crazier. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's really, <laughs> I get proved it, wrong. It can, always get, it can always get crazier. It can always <laughs> get dumber and it can always get crazier. Um, so speaking of, I, you know, I don't know. Did, did you watch the RNC? Um, no, I, I got drunk instead. You know, I think it was a good life choice. <laughs> I think it was a good life choice. I have, I watched the entire first night. I watched half of the second night and last night I couldn't handle it. I was like, uh, you know, first of all, Mike Pence is porridge, as we said, as we said, and, um, and he's just a ridiculous liar. Yeah. And everything he said was nonsense, but you know, you can't even, there's no, they've been fact checking this convention. They (laughs) they should do a, a, the the reverse and just let us know if anything was said. (laughs) accurate because I, I i don't think i don't think they've 
maybe they got the I don't know the date right or something like that. Right, right, yeah. No, Correctly I identified um, people's names in the chirons. <laughs> I, I don't know that anything was accurate. Yeah, I, I will say this. Um, so Melania's speech. It, it was it was kind of annoying. Was it hers? It wasn't like Michelle Obama's speech again. I mean, it might have been Michelle Obama's, <laughs> but the the speech that Melania delivered, um, she got a ton of praise for this. Uh, you know, setting aside the, you know, the fact that she was, um, I, I'm not going to even criticize her delivery, and I'll tell you why because I'm biased. I can't stand these people, so. Maybe the delivery worked for other people and, and it's just me. But I will say this. Um, she Her role was to be project reasonableness um, and empathy for Black Lives Matter protesters. She was the only one in the convention, I believe the only one in the convention. Oh, maybe uh, Tim Scott as well. I, I She was one of the very few people to acknowledge that the protesters have a point. Uh, she was one of the very few people to express... Uh, sympathy for the families of people who had died of COVID. But, you know, this is a woman who was, um, she was a birther. Mm-hmm. You know, like, how how is she getting a pass for every, everything, you know? And, and then the other thing that I thought was odd, and nobody addressed this, as far as I saw, is that she delivered the speech in a... Uh, quasi-military uniform. I, I did see some commentary on it. I just, I honestly think the bar, the bar is so low for her. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot, like there were a lot of people who I saw criticizing her delivery on it. And I feel like people, you know, rushed to defend her on that element because they're like, this woman speaks five languages. So she's the next Jackie Kennedy. Right. Jackie Kennedy. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, but I found it striking not only because I've never seen that before, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've seen lots of first lady speeches and they're always supposed to be, you know, like it's a, it's a gender thing, right? They're supposed to soften the president's, there's a role that they're playing, which is especially important with Trump. And here she comes out and does the uh, like Ava Perone thing. And um, so, I, you know, and I, I guess we're all kind of trained not to, uh, comment on people's, especially women's appearances, but it was a sartorial choice. You know, these are very carefully planned out events, and mm-hmm. I don't know what she was projecting there. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it, basically, it struck me as fascistic. Right. Right? Like, why is she out there in a military? Military garb, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. First Lady fashion choices have always been scrutinized, you know. I remember, like, um, everybody, she she wore, like, a pussy bow top. It was called the pussy bow top at the debate after Donald Trump, the Access Hollywood tape came out. And it was like, what is, what's her message? And then she had that, I really don't care, do you jacket on? And everyone was like, what's her message? And she was like, I don't have a message. And then later, it was like, yeah, of course I had a message. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> Literally, it was on the back of my jacket. Was, uh, yeah, you're <laughs> asking me this, asking me questions that are answered by my t-shirt. <laughs> Uh, I hate all these people. <clears throat> They're loathsome. They're mm-hmm. loathsome. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up and take a quick break and then come right back with Dean Baker. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland, and I'm joined now by Dean Baker. Dean is the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Dean, welcome to We've Got Welcome to We've Got Issues. Thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, I'm, let's pretend I can speak English. Maybe I, maybe I'll be able to. Dean, um, we know that the stock market is not the economy, but have you ever seen such a dramatic divergence between? the stock market and the real economy as we have now. Another million people filed for unemployment this week, and the S&P 500 has completely regained all of its losses from the coronavirus. Well, it is extraordinary. I mean, it's not that uncommon to see a divergence in the 1980s. For example, the stock market boomed even as the economy was pretty lackluster and most people's wages were, were falling behind inflation. So it's not as though there's any close correspondence. It's just important to remember. I mean, people have this idea, or at least some people, that the stock market is meant to be a measure of the economy. It isn't. It's, it's a measure of future profits that investors anticipate. So Amazon or Microsoft, pick your company, their stock price doesn't go up because more people have jobs. It doesn't go down because fewer people have jobs. It goes up when people think, oh, Amazon's profits next year, the year after, the year after. Those look really good. I, I want to buy more Amazon stock. It's it's not in it. This isn't a lefty critique. It's not even in principle a measure of economic well-being. It's a measure of future profits of the companies that are listed on the stock exchange. End of story. Yeah. And why is it, I mean, I'm sure that it, it, there's more than one reason. Why has it re- rebounded so quickly, the stock market? Um, why do people have a sunny idea of what is uh, what is to come in the next year or so in terms of earnings and revenues? Well, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, first off, I as you might imagine, a lot of people are calling me or emailing me, whatever, when the market was plunging back in March. And, you know, I don't have a perfect crystal ball, but I was telling them as well, I wouldn't worry that much because Congress is going to come through with a rescue package. And of course it did, Congress and the Fed, and they made sure that, you know, major companies were were going to be okay. You know, we had bailouts for the airline industry, other major industries, the Fed came in with a pile of money. I, to be fair, I actually think that was the right thing to do. I mean, you know, and I contrast that with 2008, 2009. The banks did that to themselves. There was no reason to bail them out. In this case, I mean, as much as I might not like, uh, you know, many of these companies, 
it was not their fault. They didn't cause the pandemic. So in any case, what that meant was they would get through the immediate crisis. And then, you know, if you're looking at a company's stock, you're not just asking about, oh, what do I think it's going to be its profits in the second or third quarter of 2020? You're saying, well, what does it look like in 21, 22, 23? And a lot of reasons to think that might be pretty good. First and foremost, weak labor market. We think that's bad news. It's bad news for most workers. Means lower wages, probably means higher profits. At least that's a reasonable bet. So those factors would make the stock market, stock prices look pretty good. And then last thing, of course, that that many people have emphasized, if we have low interest rates, then you expect stocks to go up because there aren't good alternatives. You know, if I can get a three or four percent interest rate on a long-term government bond, well, that's much better deal than you know. Currently, I'd have to check and look today, but it was paying about six tenths of one percent the ten-year uh, Treasury bond. So, lacking good alternatives, uh, the stock market's a good investment opportunity. Um, and let's talk about you know we we've seen a uh, a a dramatic in- decrease in consumer spending since the enhanced un- um, unemployment benefits expired at the end of July. And, you know, it's, it seems like the, um, I, and, and the inability of Congress and, and resistance of Republicans specifically to extending this is a, a bad self-inflicted wound in an election year. I mean, have you, um, have you ever seen a kind of uh, policy like this from an incumbent heading into an election, given that? 70% of the economy is uh, is driven by consumer spending? Well, it is perverse. I mean, my guess, and I, I, you know, I'm not going to claim great insight into the Donald Trump brain, but my guess is that you know they recognize the economy is going to look really bad. I mean, we only have a little over two months till the election anyhow, but it's going to look really bad November 3rd, and their story has to be, oh, it was great, and it's all China's fault, you know, with this pandemic. I, that that seems to be their strategy. And if they could sell that, then they're probably thinking it doesn't matter. The, the marginal badness doesn't matter. So, you know, they could say it's coming back, which, of course, it is. I mean, we basically shut down large chunks of the economy by design in, in April and May. Uh, so, you know, the, the quarter is going to, of course, be much better. You know, the third quarter of the year is going to be much better. It's going to we will see strong growth. And, you know, they're probably betting that the marginal difference really doesn't matter that much. And from their vantage point, they really want to stick it to the blue states. And that's probably more than anything. The the holdup between uh, Pelosi and the Republicans is that she's, of course, trying to get money for New York and California. And I mean, not just those states, obviously, red states, too. But they're totally, they've been totally nailed by both loss of tax revenue and all the expenses having to deal with the pandemic. And this is a longstanding goal of the Republicans. They want to make blue states pay for their more generous uh, welfare states. And they see this as a great opportunity. So they don't intend to let, unlike Obama, they don't let to let, intend to let this crisis go to waste. Yeah, I think there's also um, kind of an eye towards the long game in their refusal to provide uh, aid to state and local governments in that, you know, the public sector is the only place where there is still a significant um, unionized workforce. And I I think they're 
I don't think that they're going to be unhappy if there are massive layoffs, even if that causes, um, even if that aggravates the uh, labor crisis, labor market crisis, uh, and and ultimately the recession in the short term. Yeah, no, I think that's very much uh, something they would like to see. And Mitch McConnell was explicit. He wants the states to go bankrupt and default on their pensions to, to, to retirees or in current workers, too. Um, so they're, they're not really hiding their cards here. Yeah. They want to nail the blue states. And this is a great opportunity. And if it means things look a little worse come November 3rd, they're relying on blaming China for this anyhow. So, you know, my guess is that their bet whether the unemployment rate's another one, one and a half percentage points higher or lower just won't matter that much. Yeah. I mean, it's perverse because they are insulated politically in in effect by polarization by you know the conservative media we are not seeing significant erosion in the polls as a result of this really intense economic pain that's that's really just across the board um let me talk a little bit about that pain we have the fir- the first workers who were laid off during this crisis are about um th- those who are who remain laid off are at about 26 weeks without work. And that's um, the beginning of long-term unemployment, right? After 26 weeks. And according to a piece in the Washington post, um, there are various predictions, you know, different models and whatnot, but somewhere between uh, four and 6 million people by early next year may be, uh, in this, find themselves in the ranks of the long-term unemployed. And we spoke about this during the Great Recession uh, a couple of times. Well, that during the, the, the Great Recession, that was one thing that marked the Great Recession was that you had people out of work for, you know, uh, very ex- extended periods of time. Dean, talk to me about um, what the impact is, the larger impact, not just on losing a paycheck, but uh, the the social and and kind of psychological impact of long term unemployment. Why is it so yeah, devastating? Well, there's been a lot of research on this, more so of course since the Great Recession, since it was such a huge problem. And people lose their attachment to the labor force. So when you're working, you know, if you're laid off for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever, you still know your coworkers. You're presumably in contact with them. If there's a job opening, you're likely to hear about it, not just that we're used to work, but you, you know people are working. As that goes longer, then you lose those contacts. And of course, it's hard to sit through a long period of unemployment with no end in sight and basically keep your psyche, you know, keep your well-being. You know, if people we, we see this is often associated with divorces. It's often associated with with spousal abuse, child abuse, um, it, it, where people have to move. They can't pay their rent, can't pay a mortgage. Enormously disruptive to their lives, enormously disruptive to their kids' lives. They they have to go to a different school often. Um, So you have a lot of very bad outcomes. And many of these, of course, are permanent. So you have a lot of people, once they're unemployed for six months or longer, many of those people will never work again. And this is something uh, we, we struggled with coming out of the Great Recession that. We saw this fall off in, in labor force participation among prime age workers, people between 25 and 54. These are people we typically expect to be working or at least looking for work. But we saw a large fall off, uh, particularly among men um, in, in labor force participation. They just gave up. And that's that's a really unfortunate story, of course, for possibly millions of people and then their families. 
So you do not want to see people stuck in this rut of long-term unemployment. And unfortunately, we're likely to end up with the situation where millions are. Oh, it's so depressing. Um, so here we have the, the, this loggerheads in D.C. where not seeing another rescue package develop, although I still think that they're going to come together for some sort of pared down aid. Um, the, the ranks of the un, long-term unemployed is increasing and we have this crisis at the city and state government level. These are big employers, as I said. Um, what is the worst case scenario? What is the best case scenario? Of course, Noriel Rubini, Dr. Doom says we're going to get into depression, but he said that many times. Your thoughts yeah, I'm afraid I don't take uh, Dr. Doom very seriously, uh, having followed many of his forecasts of doom. Yes. Um, but no, we, we the, the worst case scenario is we don't come through with any major stimulus. Um, let's say that Donald Trump gets back in the White House and, you know, we'll see a situation where you have a president and uh, Congress committed, or at least one House of Congress probably, committed to destroying the blue states. So you mentioned earlier, you have high unionization rates, particularly among public sector workers on blue states. They want to end that. So Mitch McConnell didn't say that as a joke when he said he wanted them to go bankrupt. Um, he really wants them to make a big price, pay a big price. I, I should mention, they got a down payment. This got nearly as much attention as it deserved. They got down payment on this in their, their tax cut uh, that they passed in 217. They took away the, or limited the deduction on uh, state and local income taxes, which, you know, I think, unfortunately, a lot of progressives were mistaken on that. They said, oh, that goes to rich people. It does. But that makes it easier for states like New York and California to have high income taxes on rich people. And believe me, that's going to be a problem going forward. Um, so anyhow, we will see war on the blue states, high unemployment, um, disproportionate, of course, born by African-Americans, Hispanics. That's going to be a pretty awful story. The plus side, I'm not hoping for any great stimulus uh, while Trump's still in the White House. But let's assume that they do work out a bill that, you know, whether it gives 600 a week, maybe be 400. I mean, I'm not trying to make compromises here, but I'm just saying, you know, you yeah. will see you know, something less than what the Democrats have on the table and some money for state and local government. So we don't see another massive round of layoffs. And then once uh, the Democrats get in the White House in 217, 221, that you'll see a major stimulus bill focused on things like Green New Deal, uh, child care, health care, long neglected needs. And in this sense, the unemployment is almost an asset. I, I remember arguing with people about the Green New Deal, saying, well, if you're going to have a massive commitment to uh, green policies, you know, installing solar panels, uh, clean, clean uh, uh, cars, electric cars, um, you're going to have to raise taxes because we're, we're three and a half percent unemployment. We don't have a lot of idle resources. Well, we do have a lot of idle resources now. So you could put a lot of people to work putting in solar panels, um, doing other measures to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and just be a fantastic thing, obviously, both for the environment and for the economy. So that would be my optimistic story. Yeah. And of course, um, Dean is an economist. He's not an epidemiologist. And, you know, that's obviously a uh, something that we can't predict is exactly how the course of the pandemic will go from here. And that that is 
integral to how we recover. Um, let me switch topics a little bit. Actually, it's related to the pandemic. I want to talk to you about a subject that uh, you've spoken about very frequently in the past. Um, so we're, we ha have this unique situation with vaccines. All the other countries in the world um, basically has a scheme to set or negotiate uh, drug prices. The United States does not. And um, yet we also uh, subsidize vaccine research. Let me just quote from an NPR story the other day um, about Moderna. A, they're developing a vaccine and they, um, they got a grant, a federal grant from the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority um, towards developing a, a vaccine for coronavirus. They got, a half, they got half of a billion dollars in April. Um, it, that grant could ultimately swell to a billion dollars if the company meets all of its goals. And it's going to turn around and sell that drug, assuming that it is effective, to the federal government. Uh, talk to me a bit about this. This seems insane. We're paying for these things twice. Yeah, we're paying these, for these things twice, and it's it's important to understand. You know, people often say, "Oh, government versus market." This is unbelievable confusion. The reason why there's even an issue about Moderna selling it to us is because the government gave them a patent monopoly. And you know, we do this with drugs. It's been an issue. I've written about. Others have written about for a long, long time. But this is just obscene. Because the argument conventionally is that, oh, we're giving them patent monopoly so that they have incentive to invest in research, developing, testing new drugs, and there's a high risk. Many of them don't turn out, you know, and then they've thrown their money in the toilet. Well, in this case, we actually paid for the research. You know, again, I don't have access to Moderna's books, but they had a drug ready for testing in three months. We gave them $450 million. I can't imagine they spent more than $450 million. I mean, you can't even think what they spend it on. Three months. So we basically paid for that research. There was no risk to Moderna. Then they went to phase three testing. This is the final phase before it gets approval. Involves, I think, somewhere around 10,000 people. I don't know their exact number, but it's typically for a vaccine, be something like 10,000. We're paying for that. So why on earth would you then give them a patent monopoly, and then beg them, oh, please don't charge us too high a price. It's absolutely absurd. And it's a, a brief digression. There is so much at stake on this. A very few people, even economists, understand how much money is involved here. We will spend over $500 billion this year on prescription drugs. If you snap your fingers and just said free market, no patent monopolies, no, everything's sold as a generic, we'd spend less than $100 billion. That difference, $400 billion, is more than five times the entire food stamp budget. So in other words, this is a really, really big deal. And I should also point out it's a big part of the upward redistribution of income. We have all these people running around, again, economist-type people saying, oh, we're on upward redistribution of income is really unfortunate, but it's just technology. Guess what, folks? Patents are not technology. Patents are government policy. So the fact that we have so much upward redistribution to people like Bill Gates and people with advanced degrees in the STEM fields, that's not technology. That was a policy decision. And people aren't happy about upward redistribution. I'm fine with taxes, but let's not give them the money in the first place. And for whatever reason, that is literally not on the policy agenda, even of most progressives. 
Yeah. Um, and Moderna's market cap tripled since late February. Um, the CEO became a billionaire as a result of all of this during the downturn. That um, that phase three trial has 30,000 people. That was a big chunk of the cost. So basically, we covered all of the costs of um, of doing the research and and this company's value is blown up and they probably will get away with paying minimal taxes. It's pathetic. And so in other countries, how do they do this, Dean? Well, at the very least, I mean, they have patent monopolies everywhere. Um, We actually, that's been a major part of our trade policy. Again, you know, when, when, you know, you look at our trade deals, certainly over the last decade, um, probably uh, patent copyright monopolies have been far more important than anything to do with reducing tariff barriers because reality is most of the tariff barriers are already very low. So um, they aren't about free trade. They're about patents and copyrights. I mean, there's other things too, but, you know, but it's, it's not about reducing tariff barriers because for the most part, they're pretty minimal in most cases. Um, so in other countries, the big difference is that they regulate drug prices. So they give them patent monopoly, but they don't say, oh, you could charge whatever you feel like. They say, no, you're going to negotiate the price with us. And typically the prices in a place like Canada and France, Germany, pick your country, they're somewhere around half of what we pay. So they don't let them charge whatever they feel like. And it makes a very big difference. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Dean. I really do appreciate your coming on, taking the time to speak with me today. Um, Thanks things, a lot for having me. Things on. are bleak. Things are bleak. Um, <laughs> folks, well, plus side, they have to get better, right? Yeah. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> There's an asteroid headed towards the the planet, um, right? The day before the election. So you never. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> folks, uh, check out Dean Baker's stuff at uh, the Center for Economic and Policy Research at CEPR.net. Um, he ha- he does a great job with a a, a blog called Beat the Press, um, and I I never I I've not missed it for years. I suggest that you check it out, and subscribe. Dean, thanks again for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'd also like to thank David Edwards, our producer and engineer, and Liz Preza. Um, You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. Uh, I'd like to thank the good folks at Raw Story and Alternet for supporting the show. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, I'd like to thank all of you good people for tuning in. Uh, Have a good week and stay safe. I want to